You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. We are a thinking species. Our brains, relative to our bodies, are much larger than that of other animals, even other primates, which gives us extraordinary abilities. Admittedly, we don't always apply our brain power wisely. I can't reach those plants on the balcony rail that I need to water. I know. I'll wheel my desk chair over to the edge and stand on it. But the potential is there for profound cognitive engagement. I mean, we're the species that came up with Euclidean geometry, Beethoven symphonies, and the Twilight series. We can do amazing things with our three pounds of gray matter. But our evolved intelligence also carries a burden. Our interaction with the world is a little more complex than it is for, say, a ground squirrel who only has to worry about that next acorn. There are more opportunities for us to be misled about what's really going on. Now, some things are downright suspicious, such as the claim that Bigfoot has been in your neighbor's flower garden. Hey, honey, the big guy was sleeping in the azaleas again. They're trampled, but good. We're going to need a bigger fence. But others are less obviously suspect, such as the claim of greater health and energy printed on a pill bottle or the email that requests your bank numbers for security purposes. Face it, we need our brains to stay thinking all day. From the moment we awake... (sighs) Looks like it's time to get up. ...until hours later when our head hits the pillow. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and the origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and we devote one episode a month to critical thinking, skeptic check. And in this episode, we follow Seth Shostak for an ordinary day as he tries to sort out the fact from the fanciful all day long. It's skeptic check, skeptic Seth, as his day begins. Okay. Hmm, this toothpaste has extra whitening. I wonder, does this stuff really work? I mean, I've been using it for years, and my teeth are about as white as a grapefruit. Maybe I ought to call my dentist. Hello, uh, Dr. Armistead? Yes, this is Dr. Armistead. Well, this is one of your patients, Seth. Uh, listen, I was just about to brush my choppers here, 
And I noticed that my toothpaste, it says extra whitening power. Now, if I use this stuff, am I going to go from pearly yellows to pearly whites? No. Unless you use it for many, many, many years and don't age in the meantime. Really? Well, so, so what are they talking about when they say, you know, extra whitening power? It sounds like it doesn't have much whitening power. Well, they put some chemicals in there, granules, to help get rid of plaque and stain. But when you say little grains, is it is all it doing is abrading my teeth? Yes. Is it like sandpaper? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. So, I mean, is there no control over these claims? Uh, does well, the FDA care? you know, when it terms of bleaching, you know, the, the FDA says that toothpaste shall not contain X percentage of bleach, and it's a pretty low, low percentage. So you're going to get very poor results from either a toothpaste or even these uh, whitening strips. Well, what would help? I mean, should I rinse out my mouth with laundry bleach, maybe? <laughs> no, definitely not. Oh, well, that doesn't sound so good. Well, what about it? I mean, it also says tartar control. I, I've always wanted to control my tartar. It's, <laughs> that, it's gotten out of control. It's like Genghis Khan. He always wanted to control those tartars, too. But, no, I, I think that what you're feeling there, or seeing, rather, is a uh, reference to there are certain chemicals that can keep plaque from adhering the tartar control works basically by keeping plaque from adhering uh, rapidly to your teeth. See, bacteria like to form a biofilm, which is plaque, and if you can keep them from adhering to your teeth for a few hours in between brushings, well, that's all to the good. All right. Well, finally, uh, why are there so many different brands of toothpaste? I yeah, mean... good question. Why is there so darn many ice creams and, and orange juices and remember the mustard craze? And then the balsamic vinegar craze, I don't, I don't know, Seth. It's a good question. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I guess if anyone knows the drill, it's you, Dr. Oh, Armistead. <laughs> so, yeah, well, thanks very much for uh, clearing this up, and I'll not count on this stuff to whiten my I, teeth. I would not. I hope I didn't muddy the placky waters. <laughs> well, okay. Bye-bye. Thank you, Seth. Bye. All right. Well, uh, so much for the toothpaste. I think I'm going to use baking soda for, for brushing my teeth. Time to go downstairs. Okay, time for breakfast. I think I'm going to uh, eschew the bacon and eggs this morning and go for the healthy option. Maybe some cereal. Well, clearly we have raw milk, although I don't know what the heck that is. Raw milk. It sounds like it's something that's still, I don't know, reeling from the stinging remarks I made to it last week. Well, there's also organic milk. Organic, that's supposed to be healthier. But what is organic milk? According to the USDA, milk and milk products can be labeled organic if the milk is from cows that have been exclusively fed organic feed with no animal byproducts, have access to pasture, are not treated with synthetic hormones, and are not given antibiotics. Wow. But, but is that any better than conventional milk? I'm getting hungry just standing around here thinking about it. Maybe I could just skip breakfast altogether and take a handful of vitamin supplements or, or maybe these probiotics I got here in the fridge. They say they help with digestion. But, of course, if I don't know what I want to eat, I'm not sure what I'm going to digest. And if I let the probiotics near the antibiotics here in the fridge, I mean, that could be mutually assured destruction. Okay, things are getting dangerous. I'm going to call Steve Novella. He's an assistant professor at Yale University and the host of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and he can give me guidance. Hey, Steve, this is Seth. Hey, um, Seth, how you doing? Okay, man, but I'm standing in my kitchen kind of wondering what to eat for breakfast, and I was... Wondering whether I could get some professional help in sorting through some of my choices here. Uh, sounds like you're having one of those first world problems, huh? 
Well, I guess that's true, but I mean, it doesn't make it any less of a problem for me. <laughs> what can I do for you? Well, look, I, you know, I was going to have some cereal, and it turns out we've got raw milk and organic milk in the fridge, and I want to put one of them on the cereal. What's the difference between raw and organic? Well, raw milk simply means that it's unpasteurized. The milk can be contaminated with bacteria, so what they do is heat it up to a temperature high enough to kill that bacteria, and then they let it obviously cool back down again, and then you have pasteurized milk. It's actually made milk a lot safer to drink and reduced a lot of milk-borne infections. Well, why do I have them in my fridge? I mean, somebody must have thought they have more health benefits than conventional milk. Oh, yeah, you'll find all sorts of crazy claims for raw milk. It's a real food fad, but it's all nonsense. I mean, there's nothing to support it. For example, they'll tell you that it has enzymes in it. Well, you know, we make our own enzymes, and we don't need to get them from milk. And besides, your stomach is going to digest them all anyway. They're going to break down and not be functional. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that raw milk has any more nutrients, is any better for you. It's amazing to me that people just make stuff up to support these kind of claims. Well, okay, well, I'm going to put the raw milk aside, or maybe I'm going to put it outside or something <laughs> like that. But but there is this organic milk, and, and I know there are conflicting reports on organic milk because there was one study that says it has more omega-3s, whatever those are, and besides, it's made without antibiotics and pesticides. And then there was this other study I saw from the UK that said that it was less healthy because it had less iodine. And then there was a third study from the Dairy Council of California that said that organic and conventional milk are equally okay. So what's the bottom line? Yeah, I think the bottom line is just don't worry about it. Uh, I personally wouldn't spend any extra money for organic milk because there's really no evidence to suggest that it's better for you. So yeah, there's this one study that shows that it's got a little bit extra omega-3, but the amount is insignificant. I mean, you have to drink gallons of milk to be the equivalent of eating one fish. Just eat a fish, you know, or whatever. But it's insignificant. It's too small to worry about. And, they, and as you say, another study suggests that there's less iodine in grass-fed organic milk than in conventional milk, and that's true too. Uh, and if you don't drink any regular milk, you may just want to make sure that you have other sources of iodine in your diet. But the follow-up studies showing that it's clinically relevant, that you actually are harmed by that lower level of iodine. That hasn't been done. So these are all, in my opinion, tiny differences that are not significant. And really, it's just not worth your time worrying about these little things. But kind of naively, I mean, if organic milk is made without antibiotics and pesticides, I mean, that sounds like, you know, apple pie and motherhood. I mean, it's got to be a good thing, right? I'm, I'm certainly paying for it to be organic, so I, I figure it's got to be better. So actually, antibiotics aren't the issue because regular milk is made without antibiotics also. In fact, all milk is tested for antibiotics, and if there's any in it, they pull the entire batch. And that happens for about one in 600 batches of milk. It's just not an issue. The real issue that I think you're, you're talking about is the hormones because they do inject bovine growth hormone into milk cows to make them give more milk. But that doesn't get into the milk. However, there are other hormones like insulin-like growth factor, which may be increased in one type of milk or the other, but it's actually a really complicated story. And the bottom line is the amounts, yet again, are insignificant and not worth worrying about. So that really is all a false issue. 
But why are there so many different scientific results when it comes to food? I mean, it's not just with milk. You know, red wine, chocolate, one day they're bad for you, the next day they're good for you. How do we make sense of, you know, all these contradictory conclusions? Yeah, it's dizzying. I mean, part of the problem is that it's easy to publish a lot of studies that have unreliable or one-off results. If you remember not too long ago, the scientist published a story showing that chocolate will make you live longer or help you lose weight, right? Eating chocolate help you lose weight. And he did that as a spoof just to show how easy it is to publish crappy studies. And what he did was he just looked at a whole bunch of variables and then cherry-picked the one that by random chance alone was significant. So if you're look, comparing any two things, let's say apples and oranges, for example, and you, you look at a hundred different variables, well, yeah, five or six of them are going to be significant just by chance alone, and you publish those. These things don't become meaningful until they've been independently replicated several times, until we have a body of research. You know, I'm kind of disappointed that chocolate isn't going to help me to lose weight. Yeah, well, it'd be nice, right? Well, you know, I, I, I got to say I'm on the verge of forgoing the food altogether and just, I don't know, buy a bottle of multivitamins or any kind of vitamin. Is that maybe, maybe a better way to go? Not really. I mean, the evidence on routine vitamin supplementation, meaning not for a specific condition or illness or whatever, is pretty mixed. And again, if there were any strong signal there, I think we would have seen it by now. There have been literally hundreds of thousands of people in clinical trials where some were given vitamins and some weren't or taking vitamins. And some show that people taking vitamins do worse health-wise. Uh, some show that they may do better on one measure or another, but only in subpopulations. Again, there's a lot of noise in that data, and it doesn't really amount to very much at all. But one thing that does seem to be pretty consistent and clear in the research is that taking vitamins is not a replacement for having a good, well-balanced diet. And in fact, that may be the primary problem, that people take vitamins and they think they can get away with not worrying about how varied or healthful their diet is. And we know that if you don't eat your fruits and vegetables, again, what your mother told you when you were a kid is still the cutting edge science. Just eat your fruits and vegetables. If you don't do that, replacing them with a vitamin doesn't help. My goodness, I'm calling you about breakfast and I got a, got a lecture on you know, what to <laughs> eat. Well, I got a bottle of probiotics here. I mean, uh, these are microorganisms, right, that are introduced for beneficial effects. I mean, I assume they're bacteria. Well, will That's they, right. What are these things? Will they help me digest my food, make me, make me healthier? Yeah, I mean, probiotics are products, either food, yogurt, pills, or whatever, that contain living bacterial species. And these are bacteria that are friendly bacteria, the kind that would ordinarily live in our gastrointestinal system. It turns out that just giving one or two or three species like lactobacillus or whatever doesn't really affect the ecosystem, right? And you would, when you think about it that way, it makes sense. It's like you're, you're planting rows of corn in the rainforest, as my friend Mark Chrislip said, doesn't really have an effect on the ecosystem of the rainforest. And so what studies have really failed to show any, any consistent just overall health benefit to probiotics, there's some early evidence that maybe people with irritable bowel syndrome may be helped a little bit. But again, that's not at the point yet where we could say it's been established scientifically. But if you're healthy, there is no evidence or reason to think that probiotics are going to have any benefit for you. Gosh. Well, okay. I still got to make breakfast. Uh, what do you have for breakfast? Uh, I usually have oatmeal. Yeah. Well, okay. All right. Well, Steve, uh, thanks a lot. I, unfortunately, now I don't actually have time for breakfast, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll use this information tomorrow. Thanks for talking to me. 
No problem, Seth. Take care. Okay, no time for breakfast. It's time to head for the office. And social media is lighting up this morning about Capitol Hill. Apparently, Senator Bronstein is planning to gut the Environmental Protection Agency. Wow, that's kind of like depressing. Oh, whoa, check engine light. What does that mean? In my experience, 80% of the time, this light has gone on. There's nothing wrong with my engine. Either the gas cap is off, or the light is broken, or the sensor that controls the light is broken. I'm going to weigh the probabilities that this is a false alarm and see if that light comes on the next time I drive. Oh, hey, by the way, that weird guy that tried to reach you, he called again. Okay, well, thanks. Quick check on my email here. Only 250 new messages. Slow night. Got to get back to him. Oh, wait, what's this? Fraud protection alert. That sounds important. Maybe I ought to open it. Dear valued member, your online security is important to us. Huh. That's why we are committed to safeguarding your personal information to keep it secure and confidential, blah, 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 blah. Please click the link below to activate your account. Wait a minute. I didn't make any login attempts. I'm going to track this down. I'll just do a search here. Fraud protection alert. Huh. Others have come across this too. Well, all right. This goes in the junk folder along with the lottery winnings and the Nigerian prince emails. Okay, here's an update on that EPA story. Looks like Senator Bronstein is proposing to trim the EPA budget by 25%. Well, that's not really a gutting of the agency like I heard on that radio report this morning. All right, well, only another 200 emails to go here. SETI Institute, this is Seth. Seth Shostak? Yeah. You guys are looking for aliens, right? Well, yeah, we are. But you can stop looking, because I found them. You found them. What? How do you know that? Uh, what, what, what evidence have you got? Okay. Last week, I was driving down the highway, and I saw these lights. At first, I thought it was like an airplane or something, but then it made a sudden turn, and no aircraft we have can do that. And then it just disappeared. Uh, I, I was going to make a video of it, but by the time I got my phone out, it was gone. But they're here. I'm telling you, they're here. Well, look, I, I don't know what exactly it was that you saw, but, you know, there are other possibilities. Could have been an aircraft that was coming toward you, and then so it doesn't look like it's moving, but then it made a turn and it seemed to go off in one direction or other. I mean, that's a possibility. No, this was no airplane. I know what I saw. Well, yeah, okay, but all I'm suggesting here is that if there's an alternative explanation for what you saw uh, that doesn't involve alien craft, you really have to consider that. You guys don't even want to listen, do you? You've already got your minds made up. Well, no, that's not true. We don't have our minds made up. But, you know, if there's some other explanation that's plausible, i got to tell you, you know, people mistake uh, aircraft, obviously, for UFOs. They mistake balloons, birds, even bugs that are only 30 feet away from them. And they can, under the right circumstances, they can all look like something that's high in the sky and, and moving very fast. So, you know, you just need some pretty compelling evidence. Well, I don't think this was a moth or anything, but, you know, I guess I'll try and get my phone out faster next time I see it. Well, yeah, if you can do that, because, you know, a really good quality video would be fairly compelling, I would say. And, and who knows? I mean, if it's for real, you know, uh, the world will beat a path to your door and they'll send you a ticket to Stockholm and you'll collect your prize there. So uh, anyhow, thanks a lot for calling, huh? All right. Thank you. All right. Bye bye now. That's typical of the kind of call that I get every day. All right, time to get back to scheduling those 14 meetings for the week.
Well, as Seth does that, he's already had many opportunities for being analytical, running claims past experts, considering alternative explanations, doing simple checks online. And that's just his morning. He faces an afternoon of challenges on Skeptic Check, Skeptic Seth from Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. X-N-A-S. Welcome back to our monthly look at critical thinking skeptic check. We all know that it's important to think analytically. It keeps us away from snake oil salesmen. But there are more subtle instances when we are vulnerable to being deceived. We've been eavesdropping on an ordinary day for Seth to find out how he manages to sort through them. He had a busy morning, and now the afternoon unspools. In fact, I need to go talk to him about something. Hey, Seth. What's up? All right, I'm working on the upcoming show, Evolution Gone Wild. And remember the guy that we interviewed a few months ago about dinosaurs? Yeah, I remember that guy. Okay, yeah, he came into the studio. He was the tall guy with the mustache. Mm-hmm, yeah, except he didn't have a mustache. He had a beard. No, it was a mustache. I remember it. And he had on these red pants, and you joked about him being in the red. Well, i got to say, I don't remember saying that, but if I did, it's modestly funny. i got to tell you, I don't recall any red pants. Okay, well, what I'm thinking is, let's get him in again to talk about T-Rex. Well, but his specialty was stegosauri, not T-Rex. No, no, it was T-Rex. He had just come back from a dig in Wyoming. That that doesn't sound right. Hey, guys, what doesn't sound right? We're, We're talking about that dinosaur guy who supposedly had red pants. Oh, you mean that guy with the weird maroon shirt, the bald guy? I don't remember him being bald. But he had a beard. He had a mustache, and the pants were red. Well, you can be bald and still have facial hair. And it was a shirt. Anyway, what about him? But we want to interview him about T-Rex. But his specialty was herbivores. See? Although he did help with the T-Rex excavation recently, so yeah, sure. See? Well, why don't we all remember this guy the same way? I mean, what's wrong with our memories? Well, there is one guy who knows what's going on that we all do remember. Guy Harrison is a science journalist who writes about skepticism. Hey, Guy, there are times when Gary, Seth, and I have conflicting memories of something we've said or done or even a guest that we've all met in the studio. Why is this? Well, human memory is not reliable. That's a really important thing that everybody must understand. You do not have some sort of an organic DVR system at work inside your cranium. We don't have anything close to that. Your brain just serves up 
stories, really. That's the best way to describe it. Stories that are based on bits of information from past experiences. And every time you recall a memory, the story is a little bit different. And your brain also works hard. Your subconscious tries to protect you and tries to serve up memories that are going to help you in the present and in the future. Well, so what you're saying is that our brains don't work as a tape recorder. You use the analogy of DVR. I'll go back even further and say tape recorder, that it just faithfully records the moment and then plays it back for you. But Guy, it feels like we know what we saw. I know what I saw. This is what I saw. Absolutely. And that's what gets so many people in trouble. Our memories are just so twisted and inaccurate, but they can feel, like you said, they can feel 100% accurate. So you can't trust your confident feelings. That's a big, big mistake. You've got to doubt. You've got to look for supporting evidence beyond what a person is telling you happened in the past. Well, that would suggest that something where eyewitness accounts are paramount, for example, in the courtroom, that would make that not reliable evidence. Oh, they aren't. I mean, that that's the thing. It's horrible. It's a tragedy. Many people have been sent to prison based on eyewitness testimonies, including death row, by the way. Some 300 people in the last several years have been let off death row thanks to DNA evidence that confirmed they could not have been the person who committed the crime. The good news here is that the legal system is now in the United States slowly catching up to the science on this. There are changes. In New Jersey, for example, the New Jersey Supreme Court ruled that Uh, Eyewitness testimonies are no longer enough in a capital case. If you're up for murder, they've got to have more against you than somebody saying, I saw that guy do it. That's not enough because we now clearly understand that the most intelligent, honest person in the world simply cannot be relied on to recount events as they really happened. Although we can be pretty accurate, like we can all say, yes, we saw a man and he had a trench coat and a hat, and then maybe some of the other details would vary. So in some ways, we all witness the world faithfully, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not discounting memory as worthless. No, memory is essential. We couldn't live without it. But you have to understand when it comes to something very important or very unusual, you got to think of memory as a starting point. That's the beginning point of your investigation. It is not the end. Well, is the problem with encoding a memory or is it with the recall of the memory? Where does where does it all break down? Well, it's on both ends. Uh, you have problems when you see an event right before your eyes, your biases, your beliefs, all color what you may be taking in and remembering. For example, if you witness a traffic accident, okay, if you've recently been in a traffic accident, it was very traumatic for you, then you are more likely to judge what you're seeing in front of you as being much more violent and horrific than maybe if you're a person who's never been in a traffic accident. Then you've also got the problem on the other end. It's not just what you see when it happens, but when you recall that memory, got to remember what human memory is. Your brain is building a story based on bits of information, and that story will be edited, embellished. It's really being produced and served up to you to give you something to work with in the present and the future, something you think that your brain assumes will help you out to get you out of that situation or make a good prediction. So it's not really about accuracy. Believe it or not, say blue is your favorite color. You just love the color blue, right? Now, when you remember that accident, it's entirely possible that you may see the red car as being at fault and the blue car 
being the car that really was just in the right lane going with the proper safe speed. I mean, it could be something like that, as simple as that. So we always have to understand human memory is fallible. It's a start point, not an end point for an investigation. Well, I will try to have more humility about my powers of recall. Well, thanks, Guy. Thanks for speaking to us. Oh, you're very welcome, Molly. Happy to talk to you as always. And remember, tell Seth to give me a call anytime he wants, okay? Especially if he has any sort of weird encounters with anything, any kind of supernatural or bizarre events that happen, because I'm always looking for good research material. Okay, will do. Yeah, that all makes sense. Although, I still think our dinosaur guy had a beard. Uh, Speaking of memory, that reminds me. I need to run to the post office. You guys, hang out. I'll see you later. Okay, bye. 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 Okay, got to get this package in the mail. Hey, there's another one of those self-driving cars. You know, I see them more and more on the streets of Mountain View, and I have to say, I feel a little bit cherry about this technology. I mean, they're still under development, and even if they get them to work, I mean, what does that mean? That sounds like technology is going to take over everything and make humans obsolete. It's that simple. But then again, maybe it isn't that simple. I should probably talk to an expert. If the machines do take over, on the other hand, at least I won't have to make these post office runs. Hi, I'm Andrew Maynard. I'm a professor in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. Andrew, I live in Mountain View, California, and that's the home of Google. And every day I see self-driving cars scooting around the city. Every day. It wasn't always like that, obviously. You can tell them, by the way, by the little spinning tops on their roofs. And for now, there's still always a human in the car. I assume they're there to override the controls in case something goes wrong. But humans won't always be in the loop and we'll be doomed, right? I mean, the cars will be domed, but we'll be doomed. Shouldn't we all be worried? Uh, Yes and no. I think we have to be careful. I don't think we're doomed, but I think there are some really intriguing risk challenges ahead. But there are also some incredible benefits with self-driving cars as well. Because, of course, if you create an autonomous vehicle, in principle, you can make it a lot safer than a human driver. We're really not very safe when you you get us behind a wheel. It's hard to imagine uh, technology that kills more people (laughs) routinely, you know, than automobiles. Uh, We seem to accept that and have for a century. It is. So, yeah, I mean, if you look at the the road crashes and the road deaths and even the road injuries, it's it, it's shocking. It is very, very shocking. And it's due in part to the fact that, that as humans, we're not built for driving. Our concentration wanders. Our reaction times are slow. We think we're good at driving, but actually we're not as good as we think we are. You put a machine behind the wheel, though, and you can program that with faster reaction times. You can program it with faster decision-making. It doesn't get distracted. You put the radio on. You have your tweets coming in. A machine isn't going to be distracted by those or by the kids in the back or by the the person sitting in the passenger seat trying to tell you how to drive. So in principle... A machine can do a much better job. A machine can make smarter decisions. It can drive faster. It can go with the flow of the traffic in a way where you get to where you want to be faster, more efficiently, with less chances of something bad going wrong. Even aside from the self-driving cars, it seems to me that the, there are more and more areas in which the machines are taking over. I mean, there, you know, there are computer programs that write sports stories for the newspapers and so forth. And I get the feeling I, I may be being alarmist here, but humans are on their way out. Isn't, isn't it just that simple? Should we face up to it? Ah, they may be. Um, I do you feel worried about this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, but then I got a machine to worry for me. <laughs> right, right, right. I, 
I, I think we're actually quite a long way um, from that. Yes, there is the possibility that machines will take over things that we're used to doing and we think are uniquely human. But it's hard to imagine, certainly over the next 10, 20 years, that a lot of those very human activities, including not only reporting, but writing stories, creating narratives, are going to be solely down to machines. I think there's going to be that little essence of humanity that we're going to want to keep hold of. What is really intriguing, though, is how do we find that balance? How, as a society, do we work out what we're comfortable with machines and artificial intelligence systems doing, as opposed to what we're comfortable doing as people? And how do we find that intersection between the two? Some people would argue that you really have to be skeptical. It's healthy to be skeptical about developments in science and technology. And after all, there are plenty of historical examples where science and technology have run off the rails, including, for that matter, Victorian railroads. Yeah, you do. I'm actually a very strong proponent of, of being skeptical. I think if you're living in a world where risk is endemic, everything we do has got some aspect of risk about it. You've got to ask those difficult questions about what can go wrong and how can you prevent it from going wrong. And as the technologies we develop get increasingly complex, those questions have to be even more insightful. It's really dangerous just to put the blindfold of optimism on and march into the future saying, I'm sure everything's going to be okay, because it probably won't. What could possibly go wrong? Well, Andrew, you're developing a program there at Arizona State University around the concept of risk innovation, which seems to be the idea that we think critically about the concept of risk with new technologies. But the whole idea is a little bit broad in my mind. What, what do you mean by this? It is actually a very broad idea at the moment, and it's it's based on the concept that we're actually very bad at thinking about risk. We have these set ways of imagining risks and taking action on risks, especially if you're looking at regulation. But we're stuck in a rut in many cases. In many cases, we don't have the imagination to deal with new challenges. So go back to the, the autonomous vehicles or self-driving cars. Because we've never experienced those before, we don't have the mindset, we don't have the way of thinking that allows us to imagine what could go wrong and how to address that. So to me, risk innovation is being incredibly creative with how we imagine potential risks, but also how we imagine potential solutions. And then how we put those into practice as well, which is at the heart of innovation, actually coming up with new ideas and making sure that they're actionable, practicable. Well, well give me some you know, example of what this research is going to do, because if you produce some nice academic papers with this new initiative, well, that's fine. And you, know, you can stack up some reprints on your desk. But if I'm out with ABC Corp building some new technology, does this affect me? Yeah. So that, that's the last thing we want to do, create papers that maybe three people in the whole world read. So the sort of stuff we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking at a very wide range of intriguing problems and working out both how you can understand how risk affects those problems, those challenges, and also work out what the practical solutions to thinking differently about risk and taking action on that are going to be. We now live in a world where there are somewhere between 30 and 60, maybe 80,000 chemicals in regular use in the products we use. But we really only have detailed toxicology information on a handful of those, two, 300 of those, which means that we're using an awful lot of stuff where we think it's safe, but actually we're not quite sure. That doesn't sound like a great situation to be in. And the way we do risk research at the moment, it's going to be hundreds, thousands of years if we follow the same patterns before we have all the information we need. That's a really bad place to be. So 
risk innovation in this case would be how do we get the information we need on those thousands of chemicals to make sure that the ones we shouldn't be using we don't use, the ones that we can use if we know how to use them well, we actually work out how to use them appropriately, and then the ones that are pretty safe we don't worry too much about. And we're seeing some movement on that within the science field at the moment, actually led by the US government and actually other governments, governments around the world, where they're coming up with brand new approaches to evaluating the potential for chemicals to do harm. Uh, in the US, it's a program called TOX21, and it uses techniques such as high-throughput screening, where you carry out hundreds of tests each hour. And then you use very sophisticated computational techniques to work out what looks dangerous and what doesn't. So that's one very practical example of risk innovation where we're thinking very differently to how we've thought in the past about risk and taking action on risk. Finally, Andrew, when we read in the papers about some new technology sounds very promising, coming down the pike and it's going to invade our living rooms or whatever, you know, in in the next five years, are there some questions we should be asking ourselves about the consequences? There are. I think the first question is a skeptical question, and that is, is this technology being hyped up? Is it really going to have the impact that people claim it's going to have? So that gives you your your baseline. Don't be scared or worried about everything people tell you you've got to be worried about. The next question is asking, is this plausible? With what we can do at the moment, with the state of the science, with what businesses are doing, is this a technology could actually have unforeseen consequences. And then the next question after that is, what happens if some smart person begins to connect that technology with other technologies that are around at the moment? Could you imagine something that could possibly go wrong? That gives you an insight into where the future might go with bad consequences. And then the final question is, well, what can we do? What can you do as an individual? What can your community do? What can your government do to make sure that we realize the benefits, if there are any with this technology, without getting into a place which is really dark with the bad side of it? Andrew Maynard, we appreciate having you on the air with us. Thank you very much. Well, Andrew makes me feel somewhat calmer about technology, at least that it's complicated, not all good or bad. But you know what? There really isn't time to go back to the office. I think I'm just going to go home and stream my favorite radio show as I drive. Magic point of the moon. Is there equivalent of that from New Horizons and Pluto? Well, not exactly. We did get some uh, beautiful images from the far side of Pluto looking back. Well, as the workday for Seth winds down and he heads home, we continue to listen in as he applies critical thinking to all sorts of situations. It's Skeptic Check, Skeptic Seth, and it continues on Big Picture Science. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, and we're following Seth as he sorts out the facts from the phony and tries to check his own biases throughout the day. And the day is winding up. I should remember to check out the conjunction of Venus and Jupiter tonight. The orbits of the planets, the conjunction, well, that's one thing I know is going to happen thanks to centuries of astronomical observation and a lot of physics. 
Meanwhile, I'm going to crack open this diet root beer and catch up on the news. And Senator Bronstein clarified his remarks on the EPA this afternoon, saying he wanted to cut the fund for the study of freshwater otters by 4%, proposing that the savings can go toward cleaning up the smog in Los Angeles. In other news, the president... That EPA story is always changing. I mean, this morning, it was social media saying Bronstein was going to trash the EPA. And then the story was that he was cutting the budget by really only 25%. And now I'm hearing something more subtle altogether. What's going on here? Yeah, one person who can help make sense of this morphing news story is Peter Adams at the News Literacy Project in Chicago. Uh, Hey, Peter, there's so much news out there on so many platforms... How am I supposed to make sense of this? A lot of people compare the information age to a deluge of information akin to a fire hose, right? And so trying to consume information in the 21st century is like trying to take a sip from it, um, which can be rather daunting. Um, There's a lot of good information in that stream, but there's also a lot of bad information in that stream and a lot of manipulative information in that stream. And so consumers have to be savvier than ever. What about the way the news is presented? Because, of course, you know, if it bleeds, it leads that kind of pressure, particularly in these economic times when it comes to the media, is obviously going to skew things. For example, in the morning, I I might hear or see a tweet about a story in which some politician is going to cut the EPA out of the government, whatever. And I'm kind of worried about that. But then, you know, three hours later, well, it turns out what he's really saying is he wants to cut their budget by 25 percent. Okay, well, that's a little less alarming. And then by the evening news, it turns out that there's one aspect of what the EPA does that he doesn't agree with forest management or something like that. I mean, this is a story that's driven by the sensational, isn't it? It is. So I would say, first off, in that scenario, if you saw a tweet in the morning, the first thing you should ask is who is sending this tweet and what is their purpose in doing so? And what have they tweeted in the past? What have I seen from them that helps me understand either where they're coming from or what their goals are? Have they been inaccurate in the past? Um, So that would be first. The second is if you uh, have an immediate reaction to that tweet or that issue, an emotional reaction, uh, that's a big red flag for yourself to stop, take a breath, and to check your own biases. You know, we all have a habit of leaning into stories about which we're emotional or leaning away from information that contradicts a pre-existing viewpoint. And so kind of putting our own biases in check is a really important step. But how am I going to do that? I mean, I, you know, I'm a member of the new generation and I read these tweets all day long. How am I going to right. check? I'm not going to check them. I mean, I, I might recognize some of the people that are sending this tweet. But on the other hand, you know, they're, they're not vetted. They're not being paid to cover the news. Right. So it's really, really challenging, right? So uh, there is so much information in the digital age. Consumption habits have kind of shifted from intentional consumption to a kind of info grazing that happens in and around our lives while we're waiting in line, while we're in the car. And so that's all the more reason that we have to kind of cultivate a skeptical habit of mind. If you're exposed to a piece of information that's false, a piece of misinformation, and you don't sort of flag that as something I'm not sure about mentally, um, it can easily be integrated into your worldview. And we all kind of forget where we read or heard certain things. We also all have to be sort of rigorously open-minded and honest with ourselves so that we don't fall into an echo chamber or a filter bubble where we're only looking at um, sources of information that reflect our viewpoints. There are still news organizations that aspire to the impossible goal of being objective and neutral. And I think it's important to expose yourself to those, but I also think it's important to engage opinion pieces and viewpoints, both ones that you already agree with and also ones that you disagree with. So you're suggesting that I try and be a news omnivore. 
So, Peter, maybe you can give me an example of a story that starts out in one direction and is obviously, uh, you know, raising eyebrows around the world, and then it turns out that it morphs into something that was a, a lot different than what it appeared to be. Sure. I think, you know, no story in the past couple of years has been bigger than the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson. And I think there's a lot of teachable moments there, like any breaking news environment. So in the aftermath of the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson by Darren Wilson, obviously there was a lot of speculation and rumor about the details of what happened that day. In fact, I don't think we'll ever know what happened that day. Um, one rumor that surfaced was that Darren Wilson had a fractured eye socket, and this was taken as evidence that Mike Brown had reached into the cruiser and punched him or punched him on the street. Uh, and this was started by a political blogger named the Gateway Pundit, who had an article on his site. He took an x-ray image from a doctor's association, a surgeon's association website, pasted it into his piece and sort of let readers think that that was an actual x-ray of Darren Wilson's eye. And this rumor sort of persists to this day. One thing I think that's important, you know, for consumers when they hear something or they hear a rumor, especially if they're reacting to it emotionally, is to stop again and ask themselves, who's created this piece of information and how do I know they're in a position to know this? Well, the fact that we have so many ways to get the news today, on the one hand, that sounds like it might be a good thing. It's sort of good in the same sense that now everyone can be a writer and write their own blog. They don't have to convince a publisher to print what they've written. Democratization, if you will, of the medium. There is an upside to that, right? There is, absolutely. But it comes with tremendous opportunities for people to, as you said, create their own information, to have a voice, uh, to have a blog, to have a YouTube channel, to join the conversation on Twitter. And it gives us a tremendous amount of access to breaking news situations on the ground. One caveat I would add, by the way, is there's a proliferation of raw information now, right? And it's growing more and more as dashboard cameras and uh, cell phone cameras obviously are, are ubiquitous. So what do we do with all these images and all of this footage? I think it's really important that people not mistake a raw video of the scene of an incident for journalism or not mistake the video for a substitute um, for journalism because there's a lot of context that goes around these documents or these videos of this footage. Journalists now can take a print story and embed several videos. Uh, they can link to the raw information. They can link to documents that they FOIA'd, even if it's a 300-page government document. They can link to it on Document Cloud. Even if there's a full run of a longer video that they've excerpted on their site, they could link to that longer video to be even more transparent. And I think that's something that consumers should be looking for when they go to a news source. Well, finally, Peter, could you see kind of a return to the traditional reporter image, the, the kind that used to appear in the movies, the guy that, you know, was desperate to get that story and wanted to get to the <laughs> bottom of it. Is, is that going to come back or am I whistling in the dark? I don't think we're going to see the same image of the same sort of traditional reporter. A lot has changed with people's access to information, but I do think that public appreciation for the role that quality journalism plays in our society and in our democracy will absolutely return. I think what's key here is people need to realize that journalists can perform a unique function. Um, some of that has to do with resources, the ability to focus on a story. Some of that has to do with expertise, right? The kinds of insights that people gain when they cover a specific beat for years and years and years. And some of that has to do with access and the watchdog role, right? The pressure that public officials and, and corporations feel if a journalist is on their case about something they've done. Peter Adams, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. It was fun. What Peter said about the news is interesting. I'm going to sure try to be a news omnivore. 
Yeah, it's finally time to turn off the light and get some Z's. Well, what was that? Okay, where's my phone? Hey, uh, Guy, sorry to wake you. Uh, no problem. How you doing, Seth? Yeah, oh, you recognize my voice. Well, great, because you said to Molly to have me call you if I ever had some sort of weird experience. Uh, yeah, when I said that, I didn't know it would be 2 a.m., but go ahead, what's up? I was asleep, and uh, I'm here in the bedroom where, where I do a lot of my sleeping, actually, and then I got woken up by some strange sound, and, and, and this wasn't any sound that I recognized. <laughs> Sounds happen all the time, Seth. Just be honest with me. What are you thinking that it may be? Well, you know, my first thought was, I don't know, something fell over. Maybe there was an earthquake. I, I didn't know. And I bought this house. They said, you know, it had been haunted. I think they say that about half the houses around here, but I just sort of wonder whether it really could be something supernatural. Well, it's always good to be curious, but slow down, steady boy. I think probably what you're doing, because you're kind of half asleep, you hear a mysterious sound in the house, your brain is racing. It's trying to figure out what it is. And remember, our, our brains are these pattern-seeking machines, okay, visually and with our hearing. We're always trying to make sense of sounds, even if the sound is really nothing. So before you start to think it might be a ghost or something like that, you need to eliminate a lot of other possibilities. Okay, well, you say other possibilities, and you know, I kind of hate to say this guy, but you know, maybe, maybe this is a ghost. Couldn't it be a ghost? Oh, of course. Anything's possible. I believe in keeping an open mind, Seth, but here's the deal. Something like a third to 42% of American adults believe in ghosts. But guess what? If it was 100%, it wouldn't change the fact that there is not a single shred of evidence for ghosts existing. But these people who talk about experiences in haunted houses, I mean, they see their great-grandmother chains rattling. Somebody's rattling their chains. I mean, what is that? Yeah, well, the thing I always tell people, Seth, is... If you see a ghost or you hear what you think is a ghost, doesn't mean you're crazy, doesn't mean you're less intelligent than someone else. It probably means you're a human being and nothing more because our brains are set up to see stuff like this and hear things like this because our brains are great at finding patterns. So you hear some noises, could be anything, could be raccoons in your attic. But your brain puts those noises together and suddenly there are chains rattling in the hallway from some ghost dragging them, you know, down the hallway. Wait, 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 guy. I just, yeah. heard, the, I just heard that sound again. And that wasn't a raccoon in the attic. You know, that was downstairs. All right, listen, Seth, here's the deal. Now, before we get to the extreme conclusion that this must be a semi-transparent dead person floating around in your house up to mischief... Go downstairs. Try to find the source of this sound. You know, for example, I have an ice maker in my freezer that's it's loud. Sometimes I can hear it all the way upstairs. I think you hit it. I, I just, last week, I, I bought a new fridge, and it's got an ice maker in it. I bet that's it. Well, I'll tell you what, Guy. If it's not, I'll call you back. Otherwise, we'll both sleep. Thanks, Guy. Thanks so much. You're welcome, buddy. Take care. Well, Seth, thank you for letting us follow you around for a day. Well, it was kind of fun, I, I have to say. And you know what I've learned here is that what's important here is that skepticism isn't just a sometime thing. I mean, the world is out to fool you, like Internet scams, 
to alarm you, like check engine lights that should really be check gas cap lights, mislead you like organic milk, or just get your attention like slanted news reports. So in the end, you know, it's not a matter of science literacy, knowing science. It's about clear thinking. Are you going to toss your whitening toothpaste? Well, I... (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, It doesn't help very much, but it probably doesn't hurt. Thanks to the guests who appeared in our show, Stephen Novella, assistant professor at Yale University and host of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, journalist Guy P. Harrison, whose newest book is Good Thinking, What You Need to Know to Be Smarter, Safer, Wealthier, and Wiser. Also, Andrew Maynard, a professor in the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at Arizona State University, and Peter Adams of the News Literacy Project. And my dentist for real, Daniel Armistead. Thanks also to the critically thinking talent that helped produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, Skeptic Seth. If you'd like to hear more Skeptic Check or other Big Picture Science episodes, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you find it a little more trustworthy, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, have a comment, a criticism, a suggestion, throw in some faint praise, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.